We're going to be reading today out of the book of Galatians, uh, but I'm going to read my text way, way into the message. This is going to be Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Tells about an event that happened. It was kind of an embarrassing, uh, uh, confrontive event. But uh, I really, really need to set the stage for it because if we go back to the very beginning of the Bible, we find, of course, that God made a perfect world and he put Adam and Eve in that world. He, uh, he enjoyed having fellowship with them. That was his whole design was that man and woman would walk with him, know him, love him, receive his goodness and grace, and then that they would uh, populate the whole earth and that uh, they would populate the world with uh, the divine image. God made man in his own image, and he expected them to be bearers of that image so that the whole world and, and even the, the uh, angelic world would be able to see the glory of God in the lives of those that he had made. But uh, the third chapter of Genesis, I mean, you just get in the front door, good, and we find a problem in Eden because there is this deceiver, this serpent, this uh, devil that uh, comes to them and offers them an alternative, basically lies to them as he is a liar from the beginning, the Bible says. And he says to them, uh, you know, God is really not all that good. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, he's withholding something really good from you. And he is withholding from you the ability for you to determine what is good and what is evil. And uh, so he tempts them, uh, entices them to uh, partake of the one, the one forbidden fruit in the entire garden. I mean, God had said, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but there is one tree, and that is the tree of, of independence. It's the tree of self-determination. It's the tree of determining for your own self what is good and what is evil. And uh, we know the sad story. They ate of that tree, and all of their progeny was plunged into uh, self-determination, selfishness, sinfulness. And uh, so the question arises there in Genesis chapter 3, how can man ever be right with a holy God. Now that he's a sinner, now that he's messed up, now that he has fallen short of what God had determined, had prepared for him, how can he ever be right? How can he ever get right with God? Well, uh, God had a way, and it was, uh, he even made a promise there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that there would be one who would come a Messiah who would come and through his own death, through the wounding of his heel, through his, his death, that he would crush the head of the serpent. He would be the snake crusher, the snake killer. He would be the serpent defeater. But he would do it by shedding his own blood, pouring out his own life. So that was the promise. And so what what did Adam and Eve do? And here we, we see from the, the, I mean, right there on the front pages of the Bible, 
we see that there are two ways that uh, uh, have been taken to be right with God. One of them is the way of what we might just call religion, and the other is the way of provision. One of them is the way of self-effort. What I do to show God that I can cover my own sin. And then there's the way that God is provided by which he says, I, through blood sacrifice, will cover your sin. So we find that the very first thing Adam and Eve do when they realize that they're guilty and they've sinned against God is they make for themselves some coverings out of the leaves of trees there in the garden. And that is uh, very, very interesting because it's like they're saying, God, we, we can handle this. We know we've done wrong, but we can, we can make something, we can do something that will hide our shame and guilt. Well, God comes to them and he takes away their self-covering And the Bible says that he covers them with the skins of slain animals. And it was God's way of saying right there at the very beginning, look, your way is not sufficient. There is a way that seems right to a man, the Bible says, but the end of that way is the way of destruction and death. So he said, your way of self-covering, self-effort is insufficient. But I have a way through blood sacrifice and by that, by the death of innocent animals, I will cover your guilt. So it's just very clear right there at the, in the third chapter of Genesis. Well, then they raise a couple of sons and they have these two boys that... Uh, grow up together. One of them is a shepherd. Uh, Abel is a shepherd. And Cain, the other brother, is a farmer. And no doubt, Adam had taught his sons what was acceptable to God. God does not allow us to cover our own selves by our own efforts, but rather we trust in the shedding of blood. And so he had taught them, I'm certain, how to come before a holy God. So the day comes where they come to present their offerings and Cain brings the produce from the ground. He was a farmer. So he brings uh, his vegetables to God and he offers them to God. He said, look God, what I've done. I grew this myself out of the ground that you cursed, but... uh but I, I, this, this is my offering. And the Bible says that God did not have respect for Cain's offering. But Abel brought from his flock a lamb and slew the lamb and presented it as an offering of blood to God. And the Bible says that God had respect. He accepted Abel's offering. So again, we just see, and this is now in the fourth chapter of Genesis. We're just right there at the very beginning. God is just saying, look, there's always two ways. There is man's way of effort, 
man's way of trying to please God or trying to impress God or trying to appease God by his own effort. And then there's God's way. God's way is the way of sacrifice. Then we just come on. We could fast forward all through the Old Testament. We could come to the Tower of Babel where, again, this is man trying to make a name for himself. The whole story in there is about man trying to reach God on his own efforts. And then God scatters the nations, and something terrible, terrible happens in that chapter, the 11th chapter of Genesis, as God himself scatters the nations, and that is the birth of, of all the false religions in the world. Every false religion in the world grows out of Babel, Babylon. When you come to the 19th chapter or 18th chapter of the book of Revelation, we find uh, uh, the, uh, the destruction of the great harlot that has deceived the whole world by its uh, lies and deception and religious religiosity and it is called mystery Babylon Babel the great and uh, so all through all through the, the rest of the Bible we see this these two trajectories one is the way of trying to approach God through self effort through through what can I do to please God? What works can I do to make God like me and make God accept me and make God love me? That's, that's one way. And then, and then there's God's way. And that is the way in which God says, I will offer a sacrifice. I will do what is necessary for you to be right with me. So the truth is, we are all saved by works. Now, don't doze off and, and because you th- think the preacher just said we're saved by works. We are saved by works, but we're not saved by our works. We're saved by the works of Jesus Christ. He came and he did the work that needed to be done to provide redemption forgiveness, salvation for those who would trust in him. And so he did what was necessary by dying on the cross, fulfilling all of those Old Testament pictures from Adam's, uh, the the slain lambs to cover Adam all the way up through the priesthood and all the uh, temple sacrifices. All of them were saying, the lamb of God is coming and he will take away our sin. And he did. And so the message has always been, the two messages is the message of self-effort, religion, the, the, the message of what can I do, what, what do I have to do or not do or whatever to please God. And it has expressed itself in all kinds of religious activity, all kinds of moral or good or benevolent activity, all kinds of self-effort. And again, if you were to ask a hundred people out here in the, 
in the Dallas area today, what do you have to do to go to heaven? What do you have to do to know for sure that you'd go to heaven? Not many of them would say you have to trust in the satisfying work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. That's what you have to do to go to heaven. And yet that's the biblical answer. When the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Their answer was, well, you need to, was not, you need to start going to church. You need to start, you need to clean up your life. You need to do this. You need, no, their answer, very simply, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He has done all that is necessary. And when you trust him, when you trust him, then a new covenant, a new relationship, a new life is established. And his life becomes your life. And you identify with him to such a degree that when he died on the cross... That old you actually died with him. And when he rose from the grave, the new you rose with him. Isn't that amazing? And the life you live now, you live not by self-effort, not by trying, but by trusting. And the life you live, you live now by faith in the Son of God who loved you, gave himself for you. Well, those messages, that message began to be preached, the message of grace, the message of love, the message of uh, satisfying sacrifice of Jesus began to be preached in right after the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, for the first 12 years, 15 years pretty much, It was just preached pretty much to Jewish people. Now, the Jewish people had grown up believing that in order to really be right with God, you had to be a good Jew. You had to follow the law. You had to eat certain foods. You had to abstain from certain foods. Uh, And and you have to... uh, you have to go through certain ceremonies. You have to go through certain uh, rituals. You have to experience certain uh, events. For the men, you had to be circumcised. And, and uh, there was, there was, they had a whole list of do's and don'ts that were part of religion. And so uh, the major proponent of that teaching was a man named Saul from Tarsus. And he was so committed to this idea of we have to please God that when he heard that Christians were teaching that it is by grace alone, he just absolutely hated them. And he even tried to kill He did kill some of them. He had many of them arrested And then he himself was arrested by the risen Christ 
as he was on his way to Damascus to arrest other Christians, Christ himself appeared to him. And he was changed. And then for three years, he spent with the risen Christ. I mean, the apostles had spent three years with Jesus in his flesh, and now Saul spends three years with Jesus in his spirit. And the spirit of Christ, maybe Christ himself, taught Paul. He later came to be called Paul. And he told him, this good news is for the Jews that they're not saved by keeping the law. They're not saved by getting some part of their skin cut off. They're saved by receiving a new heart, a new life. They're not saved by what they eat or don't eat. They're saved by feeding on Jesus himself. And they're saved by grace alone through trusting in Jesus. And he began to preach that. Well, it was hard for the Jews to accept it. They, they thought, but, but we've always done it this way. It was almost like a Baptist group. You know, you, you want to get in trouble in a Baptist church, you just try to change something, you know. Say, well, we're going to change this. And they said, well, no, we've always done it this way. Well, these Jewish people, they said, well, no, it, we can't imagine not doing it this way. But then to complicate things, the Apostle Paul began to preach this good news to folks who were not Jewish at all. In fact, they had never even heard of the law. They knew nothing about the food laws, and they certainly knew nothing about the uh, ceremonial circumcision rites and things like that. And he goes into these Gentile towns, and he preaches, God loves you. And all your pagan religion will never impress God any more than Jewish religion will impress God. But he sent his son, and he died for sin, and he rose from the dead. And now those who will receive him, they will become his children. And a new life, they will they will have a love for him because their sins are forgiven. And these Gentiles began to believe that. And, and there was a church up north, about 150 miles north of Jerusalem, in uh, uh, Antioch. And a lot of Gentiles got saved there in that church at Antioch. And... And the folks down in Jerusalem heard about it. And they said, well, wait a minute. Did, did, they get, did all the men get circumcised? No. Well, well how can they be Christians if they, if they didn't do that? And, and we hear they're eating ham up there. They can't do that. I'm sure we'll have some over here too. And, and they're, 
They're not keeping the laws. They don't even meet on Sabbath. They're meeting on Sunday. And when they meet, they're, they're singing and why they're carrying on. Good gracious. They act like they're happy. Well, you know, religion's supposed to make you kind of sour, you know, isn't it? Makes you somber and you come in and you look sad. But these folks, man, they're just jumping up and down and they're singing and rejoicing and good gracious. And so they said, we need to send some folks up there to check it out. And so they sent Barnabas and they sent some other people. And when Barnabas got there, he was kind of overwhelmed. Can you imagine? It'd be like the first time you ever went to a... a Maybe an Assembly of God church or something like that. You know, some of you, some of us Baptists have been to some services where they are a little more expressive than we tend to be. And the first time I ever went to one of those, it kind of scared me, actually. And uh, now, if you go to one where they're handling snakes or something, you probably ought to be scared there, right? I'm not doing that. I've never been to one of those either, but there are some of them back in Tennessee. But uh, but Barnabas saw it, and he said, man, these people are its different than the way we do things down in Jerusalem. But he said, you know what I see? I see the grace of God. I mean, I see God's grace. These people, they really are in love with Jesus. And they sing about Jesus, and they talk about Jesus, and they live for Jesus. And, well, they're like a family of Jesus followers. It was Bear Creek Baptist Church right there in Antioch. With a little more freedom maybe than we have, but, uh, but, uh, but they, were, they were a happy bunch. And so then, then they sent Simon Peter up there. Now, Peter goes up there. Now, Peter is the apostle to the Jews. And he goes up to Antioch. And he gets up there. And now, he's already had an experience back in in the 10th chapter of Acts. He's already had an experience in the home of a, a Gentile in which God said to him, Don't you call anything unclean that I call clean. And so he's learned already that that God can save Gentiles. In fact, he was the first one to ever see a Gentile get saved with Cornelius and his family. And so he goes to Antioch, and he's bound to be uncomfortable at first because they're, I mean, really, it's hard for us to even comprehend it, but but in that day, Jews and Gentiles just didn't have anything to do with each other. They didn't eat together. They didn't do anything together. It's kind of like I remember as a boy back in the 50s in Tennessee, blacks and whites did not have anything to do with each other. They didn't go to school together. They didn't go to church together. They didn't, uh, they didn't, they certainly didn't eat together. It was horrible. It's horrible, horrible, horrible. And I can tell you some experiences that even as a little boy, I, I wondered, how, how can they treat them like that? 
But they just didn't have any fellowship with one another. They were totally separate, totally separate. And that's the way the Jews and the Gentiles were. And so Peter comes up to this Gentile church in Antioch, and he's a little uncomfortable probably at first, but then he begins to loosen up a little bit. He says, hey, you guys are all right. And they say, well, come on, eat with us. At first he said, well, you know, y'all just go ahead and eat. I'll just, I'll hang over here, but... But then after a while, he comes on, he starts eating with them. And then they serve him a ham sandwich. And Peter says, oh, I can't eat this. This, I, I'm a Jew. And they say, well, no, man, you're a Christian. Christians can eat anything. And at first, he just kind of eats the bread maybe around the ham, eh? But then after a while, he gets a taste of it. Oh, wow. Where's this been all my life? And he likes it. And so he's eating with these Gentiles. And next thing you know, he's singing with them. Next thing you know, he's getting excited with them. Next thing you know, he's acting just like them. And then one day, some folks from down in Jerusalem show up, and they claim they were sent by James, who was kind of the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know that they were sent by him, but they claim they were. And they come in. They're wearing all their Jewish garb and looking real religious and coming in to spy out what's going on. And Peter's over there getting ready to take a bite of a ham sandwich. And he looks around and he sees these folks from James. He throws that sandwich down. So, oh, and he backs away. He, he moves away from the table. He's not going to sit with those Gentiles anymore. And he starts acting like, well, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, it can you believe what they're doing? And uh, this is Simon Peter. Pope Peter. Not really. But because uh, he was married. So he couldn't have been Pope, could he? But uh, and so Peter begins to not have anything to do with these Gentile Christians. And Pretty soon, the other Jewish Christians who are up there, they follow Peter's example. They say, oh, well, yeah, I guess. And even Barnabas, my goodness, even Barnabas backs away. And so here, here they are saying, uh, we really believe that in Christ we still have to keep all these old Jewish laws. And we don't have the freedom that we were experiencing and expressing before these Judaizers, they're called, got here. And so, here's the text. Now, I've done preached the sermon. I'm going to read the text. And this is in Galatians chapter 2. Two, beginning in verse 11. 
But when Cephas, that's Simon Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he deserved it. He stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Wouldn't you hate to be known as the circumcision party? Doesn't sound like a party to me. <clears throat> but uh, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, now can you imagine, here is Simon Peter, and Paul calls him out in front of everybody. That'd just be embarrassing, wouldn't it? I've always felt just a little bit sorry for Peter here. But it needed to be done. And I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? (laughs) He said, look, before they got here, you were acting like one of them, and now you're trying to make them act like these Judaizers. We ourselves are Jews by birth. We're not Gentile sinners. I think he must, I think he probably did that when he said it. We're not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, not by human effort, not by our religious activity, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. He said if... if Jesus has given us freedom and we're living in that freedom. Does that mean that Jesus is making us a sinner? He said, that's silly. Don't even talk like that. For if I rebuild what I tore down, then I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And then here's wonderful. This this is a great 220 to plug yourself into every morning. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, that's the gospel, folks. Now, there are some right things to do. There are some good works that we ought to do and that we do. But here's the difference. If I do good works in the hopes that my good works are going to make God love me, 
then all those good works, the Bible says they're like filthy rags. They're just, God doesn't see them as good works because he looks at our heart. He looks at our motive. He looks at why we're doing them. But if we fall in love with Jesus and we trust him and we say, I have been crucified with Christ. I'm alive, but, but it's not I. It's Christ who lives in me. And he loves me. And I live now by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. Then I do good works. But I don't do them in order to please God. I do them because I'm pleased. God is pleased with the sacrifice of Jesus. That makes, does that make sense? It really should make sense. But I tell you who it doesn't make sense to. It doesn't make sense to Cain. Cain murdered his brother. And I want to tell you, religion has always hated Jesus' followers. It always has. Religion. Even if it's, quote, the Christian religion, if it's self-effort in order to please God will always persecute the faith followers of Jesus who just live by love. You can go back through the Christian, through Christian history and you see it all the way through, all the way up through the uh, Anabaptists, through the... Uh, Reformation, all the way up, and even to this day. You know the most persecuted group in the world today? It's not Muslims, although they are persecuted in some places. It's not Hindus, although in certain areas they persecute one another, actually. And most of the Muslim persecution is persecution by other Muslims, the Sunnis versus the Shiites and so forth. But the most persecuted group on this planet are Jesus lovers. Not just professing Christians, but lovers of Jesus. And I guarantee you, you go out here and you let it be known that you really love Jesus. And there will be some canes that will be raising cane. And they will be upset. And they will say you're narrow-minded. And that you're, that you're uh, uh, intolerant. And they'll, some of them will hate you. But our role is to just love them back. We don't fight with them. We just love them. And we tell them the truth. And then if they oppose the truth, that's their choice. Our choice is to love them and tell them the truth. So I'd say to you today, every person here that has some kind of hope of going to heaven, every one of you who say, you know, I want to go to heaven when I die. Every one of you. 
are saying one of two things. Well, I think the way to get there is by trying to do good things. Try to obey the Ten Commandments. Try to keep, try to go, go to church. Try to be religious. And that makes a lot of sense. So much so that most of the world believes that. But then there are others who say, you know, I, I could never be saved by my works because all, even my best works are filthy in God's sight. Amen. But I can be saved by the work of Jesus. And he did everything that needed to be done. He lived a perfect life. He died in my place and he rose from the dead as a receipt that says payment accepted. And you can have him and the life he gives and the love he gives. But it comes not by trying, but by trusting, trusting. Only trust him. Only trust him. Only trust him. Now, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have made the way of salvation through Jesus in such a clear way that Jesus himself could say, I am the way. I'm the way. And so we we want to live clean lives. We want to live good lives. We want to live kind and 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 obedient lives. But we want to do it because we're loved, not in order to try to win your love. So I pray that you will help us today to examine our hearts, to ask the question, what am I trusting in? Am I trusting in my best efforts or am I trusting in Jesus? And I pray that everyone here will only trust him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We invite you to like us on Facebook or visit our website, www.bearcreekbaptist.org. If you're not a member of another church, we would like to invite you to join us in person and get to know us and let us get to know you. Have a great week, and may the Lord richly bless you.